You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Peter Lapp, who's an FBI special agent in the Washington field office. His two-decade career at FBI has included work in counterintelligence, work as a detailee to the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the unit chief at the FBI headquarters in the Economic Espionage Unit, work with partner engagement in the private sector, and more. So welcome, Peter. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks, Vince. Thanks for having me. So you started your law enforcement career as a cop in Pennsylvania. I did. Uh, was this always intended to be a bridge to the FBI, or did you get the law enforcement bug when you were a police officer? Well, initially, I wanted to be a rock star, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I grew up in Jersey and, and uh, wanted to be the next John Bon Jovi. And when I realized I didn't have that kind of talent, I, um, I then decided I wanted to go in law enforcement and, and serve. Um, very quickly, early on uh, in my undergraduate studies, I knew that if I was going to go in law enforcement, I wanted to go what I felt was and still do think is the best law enforcement agency in the country, in the world. So um, targeted the FBI as my career ambition um, and did everything up to... Um, when I turned 28, to, to focus and get myself more competitive to become an FBI agent. As the FBI is, is doing now, there's a lot of public outreach to try to let the public know that a lot of different jobs you can do within FBI. Absolutely. And counterintelligence is one of them. Uh, it's one that is not the largest branch within FBI. I mean, the kind of the special agent chasing down kidnappers and bank robbers and everything else. Is CI something that you always wanted to do when you think about the FBI, or is it something that you kind of got pushed into uh, <laughs> as other, you know? Is it, 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 nowadays, the counterintelligence branch of FBI is kind of the sexy one because of all that's happening in the world sure. and in, 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 sure. since 2016. 20 years ago or so, or 15 years ago, it wasn't necessarily as right. sexy as it is today. True story. I'm at Quantico in the summer of 1998. 
I got my assignment to Washington Field, which for me being from Philadelphia was close enough to home. And I kind of fully expected the FBI and its infinite wisdom would send me to go work the cool stuff with my police background, my criminal justice uh, education, you know, send me to go work violent crimes and gangs and homicides and all the fun stuff. My boss called me halfway through Quantico and she said, hi, my name is Diane, congratulations, you're coming to the Cuban counterintelligence squad. And I literally said, what the heck is that? And she said, I, I can't take you, can't tell you over the phone. So it was not um, a, a career ambition of mine once I got in the FBI at all. And I was kind of uh, initially biding my time to do my time in CI and then hopefully go do something that mm -hmm. I thought was more fun. And a couple months into working it at Washington Field, it started to get pretty interesting. And I enjoyed the work that we were doing and enjoyed doing things that had national type impact, international. I mean, when you're working against Fidel Castro's folks, mm -hmm. that has a historical reference. It has, it has uh, a certain amount of intrigue to it. And pretty quickly when I started working it, it, it I warmed up to, to counterintelligence. I'll be honest, I haven't, I haven't looked back and regretted it since. How much on-the-job training is there? Because CIA work and law enforcement work, even though they're both being done by the FBI, are dramatically right. different right. ball games. Right. How much? I mean, Quantico prepares you to be an FBI agent. Right. How much? It, almost think of it as a kind of basic infantry officer's course. Right. Sure. You actually have to learn to be an infantryman after you've gone through West Point. Right. How much did you have to kind of learn as you went? Well, pre 9/11, post 9/11. Pre 9/11, I think counterintelligence was one day at Quantico. Um, post 9/11. We actually increased the academy an extra four weeks to add a significant amount of national security studies. So my experience at Quantico being pre-9-11 uh, was one day, and then the rest of it was, in fact, on the job. And I was fortunate to have um, several senior agents who worked Cuban counterintelligence who knew about the history of the program to guide me along in, in learning about the nuances of counterintelligence and also the Cubans. What's interesting about the Cubans is that they're, they're so good at what they do, maybe even better than some of the other higher profile, well-known targets, if you will, but they don't receive that high level of priority. Everyone's talking about Russia and right. China, and that's where the emphasis is. So you kind of are able to work underneath the radar in terms of priority, um, but the challenge with the Cubans is, is immense. I mean, they've, they've survived 60 years um, because of their ability to to, to collect intelligence um, against their adversaries, including the United States. Well, a lot of times you hear Cuba, you, you know, people use a, a boxing analogy, kind of pound for pound. Sure. Right. They're not the behemoth that the SVR is. They're not, you know, huge like China. But pound for pound, the DGI, now the DI, could be considered the best intelligence agency in the world. I mean, they have an advantage in that they really only have one major target, and that's True. the United States. True. But they're really good at what they do. They are, and I think, I think what makes them so good is their ability to attract people that, kind of like the Montezes of the world, that uh, have that visceral empathy for their cause and don't do it. They're not motivated because of money. Right. They do it because they have um, either an ideological motivation or an empathy for how the— the Cubans have been treated by the United States over the years. So they find people that connect with them emotionally, I think, versus financially. Does a counterintelligence professional have to be as good at tradecraft as the intelligence officer? 
Do you kind of need to understand the offensive intelligence operations in order to defend against that? I do. I, I think that, you know, we have specialists that follow um, a, a career path in and of itself that just do the surveillance. Um, you know, agents may not be the best at it because we don't do it every single day. However, I think that what's more important for, for counterintelligence folks, agents working that program, that discipline, is to, is to be able to have an open mind because sometimes you see things that you think they mean something. Could be walking into a store, could be backtracking in a tunnel or some kind of weird driving technique that is just someone being lost and someone forgetting their credit. You know, mm -hmm. it, there's an innocent reason sometimes to things. And I think what makes a good counterintelligence agent is someone who can see things and understand that there could be an alternate reason for that behavior and therefore let's not exclude that in our understanding of what's going on. The FBI as an organization has to evolve holistically with new technologies that change. Right. How much is CI driven by technological change? I'm thinking of stuff like, of course, cyber. But more than that, I mean, the ability of, you know, the iPhone is a wonderful intelligence tool sure. for offensive intelligence operations, right? You don't need to use a Minox camera to take microfilm and then do a dead drop or pass along. Mm -hmm. You can just take a picture of a document and then email it to the other side of the world instantaneously. How important is it for the FBI and particularly CI within the FBI to constantly keep up with technological change and understand how it impacts the job that you do? I think it's really important. I think that obviously as our world evolves electronically, we have to keep up. We have to keep up with the ability to utilize the legal tools that we have, whether it's FISA or Title III. I also think, though, that foreign intelligence services sometimes are more comfortable with the old school method of communicating. Mm -hmm. There's nothing better than a face-to-face -face quick brush pass. Um, there's nothing better than a dead drop. There's nothing, um, you know, chalk. And, and I feel like, you know, in using, using Monta as an example, the Cubans, once we made the arrests in Miami in September of 98, they went backwards with her. And we're very concerned about things and how we were able to discover that network in Miami. And their comfort level wasn't to go forward with new things. It was to kind of go back to the old tried and true methods right. that was old school, for lack of a better way of saying it. I want to ask you about interagency cooperation, because the Montez case, which we'll transition to in here in a second, was one that needed more than just the FBI's input and, and investment. And, and many of these intelligence agencies have their own CI section. Sure. Now they're focused on different things. Uh, you know, the FBI is the one that's actually going to arrest the bad guy uh, and is the primary bureau for CI work. How much do you work across not only the intelligence community, but also within the, the government complex, right? I mean, DOE's got its own intel guys, but their intel guys at DOE aren't doing any kind of real work that's kind of the same as what CIA is doing. Right, right. Uh, extensively. You know, the IC especially is, is tight in terms of the interagency. We have to be. You know, the FBI is good at what we do. However, we're only as strong as the partnerships that we have within in this, in this kind of discipline, the, the IC. Um, whether it's going out and doing awareness briefings, whether it's talking about projects, you know, unsub, unknown subject projects that are ongoing, um, legacy investigations, we have to have that interagency because 
most often than not, the FBI doesn't own the original intelligence or source information. We're getting that from, from our partners, and therefore we need their perspective on things because we can look at things, like I said before, having that alternative thought process is healthy um, to, to resolving these very complex hidden issues that you know, are meant to be hidden and, and not discovered. So it's, it's critical. Well, I can think of it uh, just as critically perhaps is understanding targets of intelligence because to be a good CI officer, you need to understand what potentially could be stolen. And in a lot of cases, if you think about nuclear weapons complex or if you think about high technology, you have a criminal justice background. You, you're not a physics major, right? You don't have a PhD. You don't necessarily know what is important to steal. Sure. And I can imagine working with partnerships at like DOE, at other places, at the Department of Defense, understanding, hey, they're stealing this widget from the F-35. What's the big deal? And then someone at the Pentagon being like, it's a huge deal. Right, right. Well, even looking at the private industry, you know, our, our engagement with private industry has grown dramatically. Um, they're in whether a company has... U.S. government-owned secrets or whether they have trade secrets. They have to realize that there's a foreign intelligence emphasis that's targeting those. You know, if, if they can make Kevlar, someone can steal Kevlar from DuPont Dow and make it and put DuPont Dow out of business, steal those trade secrets, that, that increases their ability to, to profit from that. And that's, that's something that we've done a very good job, I think, of trying to teach the private industry about those economic espionage type threats. So I'm going to transition to Anna Montez. You were the co-agent on the case that worked uh, against Anna Montez. Yes. This might be a, an awkward question, but I want to ask you about how awkward it was <laughs> that Anna Montez had a brother and a sister, Tito and Lucy, who were FBI agents. Yeah. Um, so Tito was an agent and Lucy was a translator. Um, I remember distinctly Steve McCoy, my, the senior co-case agent, he and I would go out for, he smoked, so we would go out for a smoke break. And I can remember a number of times talking to him about how we knew when she was arrested how this was going to impact her family, knowing that her brother was an agent, her family. Her father, by the way, was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. And her boyfriend worked at the Pentagon. Yeah. He, 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 she had a boyfriend yeah. who worked in the IC at the time. And, and um, we knew we knew that um, this was going to impact their family. And I don't think people think about that when they think about espionage. You know, you think about Hanson, you think about the betrayal to the United States, to the country, to the government, to the FBI. Um, you don't necessarily think about the betrayal to his family. You know, it's kind of this ad, this afterthought, if you will. And we knew that that was going to be really impactful. Um, they, they're great people. Um, I'm absolutely certain none of them knew anything about this. If they did, um, we would have investigated that and, and, and arrested them if the facts merited that, but they were completely oblivious to this. And uh, it's been very difficult for them with this be her betrayal, given the values um, that they held and worked so hard for. In fact, there's a picture of Anna at um, Tito's graduation from New Agent Training, the same training I went to. And I want to I want to say the picture is dated 1987-88, and it's at Quantico. It's after he graduated. It's the day of his graduation, and um, she had already been spying for the Cubans for two or three years by that point in time. That's hard to it's hard to kind of um, um, to walk to look right. at. Well, like you mentioned, her motivation she was a true believer. Um, in your mind, forget Anna Montez, but let's go broader than that. Sure. 
we talk about motivation and FBI kind of create this mice concept where um, the other ones are somewhat dubious in their merits, right? Money, ego, the kind of compromise. Ideology, as an academic, which is me, I've looked back at the Kim Philbys of the world, and now he was as damaging as it gets. Mm-hmm. But he, he truly believed in what he was doing. And compare him to the Hanson and Ames of the world who just did it for the money. Right. Do you have more respect for the ideologues than you do for those that are just doing it for money or for self-worth or for some other ego-driven reason? I think we generalize ideologically motivated spies too, too broadly. Um, we, we put folks that didn't get money for their espionage into the ideological camp, if you will. And I think that's um, a little lazy mm-hmm. because you know Montez would not describe herself as a Cuban, as a socialist, as a communist. She saw the flaws of the Cuban government. However, she had this anti-American attitude because her perspective was how dare the United States dictate how El Salvador and Nicaragua should run their countries in the early to mid-1980s under the Reagan administration. So I don't know if I describe that as ideological Mm -hmm. because it was more anti-American. And I, I see that continuing. History is kind of repeating itself with the Snowdens, the Mannings, the, the, the reality winners, um, folks that aren't necessarily ideologically motivated. They're not providing classified information to a foreign power. However, they're ticked off at something that the U.S. government's doing, and their reaction is to disclose classified information. What, what always uh, was interesting to me about the Montez case was the idea that she essentially infiltrated the DIA. It wasn't that the Cubans recruited somebody within the DIA. She was already working for the Cubans when she got the job at the Defense Intelligence Agency. I mean, it's a full-fledged Cuban agent infiltration of American intelligence. And it makes her unique from a lot of other folks. Yeah. You know, quite frankly, her gender is unique because most of the women that we have arrested for espionage over the years have been the spouses of the main um, target, you know, Ames. We arrested his wife, but she was just a co-conspirator. Mm-hmm. She didn't have access. She's unique because she's a she. Um, she's unique because the day she walked into DIA, she was a fully recruited agent. It's not like the others where they start out loyal, they take the oath like I did. They, they, and then at some point in time in their career, they flip. Right. Something happens. The day she walked in, and the only reason she went to work at DIA was to spy for the Cubans. Um, you know, She described that as torture because she had to work for the war machine. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know it, that shows to me more of a level of commitment um i don't want to say it's respected but it's i appreciate that more than just someone who did it for money and solely for financial reasons a lot of people may you maybe even had this thought yourself a lot of people may think about cuba forget how good their intelligence agency is but as a national security threat mm-hmm. to the united states maybe is not all that big of a deal um, I remember when the WASP network was rounded up, the Cuban Five, yep. and the reason they did not get huge prison sentences is because they made the argument they weren't spying on the United States. Right. They're spying on the Cuban exile community in Florida. Sure. And so there are a lot of people maybe that didn't grow up in Miami, which I did, who don't have the perception of Cuba the way that a lot of people in South Florida do. What's the big deal about the Cubans knowing some stuff about us? They're not invading us anytime soon. They're certainly not a military threat. Right. 
Uh, there are dinky little islands off sure. of Key West. It's who the Cubans would hang out with yep. and who they would affiliate with and who they would... Uh, they treat intelligence as um, a commodity. And therefore, they'll, they'll steal intelligence from their trusted agents, pull that back, and trade that for whatever on the world stage with um, their partners, many of whom uh, are, are some of our more notorious adversaries, shall we say. Well, Montez herself actually did some stuff that had real-world impacts, certainly life or death. I remember she dimed out a special forces camp in El Salvador that was attacked right after she told, and then certainly that was a, a life-and-death situation. Um, we but, can't prove that, right, but we right. highly suspect that that was... And I, and I will tell you this, we can't prove it. However, when we brought that up to her, she said, if I knew about it, and if I knew the identity of who was going down there and what their mission was, I would have provided that to the Cubans and... If they died as a result of that, that was the risk they took. Right. It's kind of chilling, to be yeah. honest with you. Well, I think, to, to me, the one thing also we can't prove that is clear in my mind is how much influence she had on the way we viewed the Cubans as a national security threat right. and as intelligence threat. Because basically, she was the one kind of devising American views and policy towards Cuba while at the same time being an agent of Cuban intelligence. That's as good as it gets. Yes and no. I'll, I'll, I'll disagree with you, too, a, a little bit on this because, you know, she wasn't the only analyst in the community looking at data and coming up with uh, an analysis, a picture. Um, if she was too extreme and too off the reservation, shall we say, from the rest of the community on that, it would have drawn some inherent mm -hmm. suspicion to her. So I think that, yes, she had a bias just because of what she was doing. I do think from her, her own self-preservation perspective, right. she was probably really cautious not to go too far in one direction or another where she would isolate herself and then people would start looking at her going, hmm, you know, that's not what we all see. Why are you the only one out here in left field? And that's an interesting part of the tradecraft is that she, she had to make a conscious decision to pull back what she actually wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. And that makes it incredibly difficult. I mean, that, that's where um, I imagine... Uh, she probably wanted to come right out and say, like, you guys are crazy, but had to be very specific about not doing that. Yeah, and think about what her ultimate value to the Cubans was. You know, being able to provide them with raw intelligence, and then much of what she provided to them was uh, opinions, you know, uh, analytical products that now were blessed by the intelligence community and deemed as gospel and then the Cubans would know about, and she was the author of many of these documents. So then the Cubans would know, this is what the U.S. government's position is on this. And knowing that piece of information was much more important to them than having her persuade and, and, and drive policy in a certain direction. I think that was more their, her value to them. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. 
Well, I mean, there's an easy way that they, they could have established her analyst bona fides by her feeding them what she was going to say was going to happen. Sure. And then they, them doing that exact thing, it would make her look like she was a genius. Absolutely. And I, I can't say that there weren't times where they, they definitely tried to make her access look good to certain Cuban on projects mm-hmm. that were a benefit to them to enhance her credibility and, and further her career. Um, as an analyst. So this may be an an unanswerable question, but usually when you arrest one spy, there's others that you haven't gotten your hands on. Sure. Do you think that Montez was the tip of the iceberg, that there's still others likely throughout? I mean, as good as... There used to be a kind of an old wives' tale when it came to the exiles in in Miami that um, for every 10 exiles, there was one Cuban intelligence officer. In Miami, sure, um, and we haven't caught all of them yet. Certainly, uh, did you think that Montez was just a lucky outlier, or that she was an example of what might be around the USIC? I'm more the more an example. Yeah, you know, several years later, we arrested um, the couple from the State Department, the um, Myers, yeah. the Myers couple. Um, um, so clearly, I think the Cubans ability to penetrate our government our, and our intelligence community is, is, uh, is really strong. I do think she was just the tip of the iceberg. One of the extraordinary recent cases of the FBI rounding up a spy ring was the, the ghost stories operation. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Russians were followed for a good decade by the FBI and there's an extraordinary amount of great footage, surveillance footage on the FBI website that you can go look up. These are Anna Chapman and crew, sure. people, the sleepers uh, living in the United States, basically what the show The Americans is based on. Montez was under suspicion and actually known to be a Cuban agent for a while before she was finally picked up. I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to let you say it. What was the impetus for finally arresting Montez and deciding that the, the case had gone far enough you could actually prosecute her? So it's important to know that you know, DIA comes to us, and, and by the way, DIA was a tremendous partner to us. This, they provided us the lucky break, um, total, complete partnership from beginning to end, and, but not for their impetus. I don't know that we ever would have got on the name Anna Montes. They come to us in the fall of 2000 with the name, and then we arrest her on September 21st, 2001. Um, approximately a 10, 11-month investigation, not too dissimilar from the average of how long these things go for the the driving force though for arresting her was 9 11 Mm -hmm. um by that point in time i mean the day dia came to us with the name anna montes uh i i like to joke they had her um her orange jump shoot picked out they knew exactly what size she Mm -hmm. was going to be that's how convinced they were and at the end of the day they were 100 percent right we had to prove that. Um, we had to use the rule of law to prove that she was, in fact, a spy and then that she was engaged in espionage. Um, 9-11 was a transformative event for the country and, and for the investigation because although she didn't work Afghanistan, the DIA was reprioritizing and she was going to get put on a battle damage assessment team. She wouldn't pick out targets, but she would look at targets after they had been engaged and assess whether they needed to be re-engaged mm. and at that point in time the director of the dia basically gave the ultimatum to the fbi and said you have until friday september 21st to either arrest her or she will be fired so montez got 25 years mm-hmm. um 
Ames got life, Hanson got life, Walker got life, which turned out to be life since he's died in prison. Sure. Do you think that if you had been given more time, that Montez's sentence would have been even more harsh? Um, she seems to have gotten off. I think she's eligible for parole in a couple of years. I mean, this is someone that, and she's not all that old. Right. This is someone that could live out her last two decades as a free woman, maybe even in the United States, but sure. probably not. Um, was it because you kind of were forced into the arrest that you can necessarily get all the information you wanted to? No, and that had nothing to do with it. Um, within the espionage law, there's seven different criteria of information that can result in the death penalty. Um, Hansen had a death penalty count because he gave up the identities, Ames as well, of people that we had recruited in those governments who the Russians ultimately arrested, convicted, and executed. So the, the human loss of human intelligence, and we can prove it, mm-hmm in an open court allows allowed us to move towards the death penalty and negotiate from death to life with, with Ames and, and Hanson. With Montez, we had a death penalty piece of information that we know she passed. We could not declassify it. We didn't own the information. And since we could not declassify it, we couldn't use it in open court, and we couldn't use that as a negotiating tool to say we're going to release this information and go for the death penalty and therefore your option in a plea agreement is life. Right. So we had to work with, if convicted at trial, she would probably get life and work our way down. And, you know, I, f- I think that, I understand your point about the amount of time. Um, 25 years is a long time. Right. Factor in the amount of information that we learned about how the Cubans would handle someone like Montez. Um, we were able to to really understand all the things that she passed and and how she passed it and the methodology which was a remarkable learning experience um coupled with the fact that you know at the time she was arrested she was 45 years old 25 years yeah is jail is not easy right (laughs) i don't care if you do two years six months or 25 years it's it is a a big impact on on your health and your life expectancy she's not at some country club I've, yeah, I have home. been there, and it is not a country club. Trust so what, me. she's outside Fort Worth, I think? And she, like, is, she is at an all-women's facility yeah. in, in, I think it's Carswell or Caswell, Texas. Um, uh, I visited, and I was, I was very happy I got to leave right afterwards. It's an interesting dynamic that you talked about. The idea is that you had some pretty damning evidence against her that you couldn't use. Yes. And I kind of think back to Venona and some of the early Cold War spies that were able to go... Scott, like Ted Hall uh, was one of the most important nuclear spies, but the only evidence we had against him was Venona, which we weren't going to declassify right. for this. Right. Um, in a very general sense, because you can only talk so much about this, how much is classification a limitation in what you're doing in counterintelligence work, not just with Montez, but in a broader scale, where you do some, how often do you run against that roadblock where you've got somebody dead to rights or you can actually add on to a sentence or you can make it much easier to crit- to convict someone, but you can't because of national security issues and classification. It's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, in looking back on Montez and using that example, the, the original source information that got us onto the matrix, if you will, the data points remains classified and remains highly classified. So, to have been able to have put together a case where we identified the suspect and proved that they were committing espionage or conspiracy like we did without having to declassify that original mm-hmm. source information is huge. And, and being able to put together a case that, you know, 
the facts and circumstances that went into the arrest warrant were from what we found in her apartment were found with the shortwave radio and the laptop and the payphone calls that she was making versus the highly classified stuff that that got us started but still remains to this day highly classified so it's very important to be able to prove the case if we can in a criminal environment without going back to mm -hmm. the classification and and those are definite big challenges for us FISA gets a lot of attention because of yes. a mis complete misunderstanding of what it is. Absolutely. Um, but I'm wondering, is, is there a need for a grand jury, for class, a classified grand jury, for lack of a better way, or, or judges that can provide warrants based on things like classified information to allow you to go beyond that? Because I'm thinking of a case like Ted Hall, right, where I'm sure there's plenty of evidence there, but you couldn't actually get a warrant to do anything because you couldn't walk into a federal judge and say, we know he's a bad guy because we've been stealing Soviet secrets for the last 20 years. You know, the FISA process is huge for us. Yeah. It, I, I can't stress enough how difficult it is to get a FISA. The case that we, we had a FISA against Anna Montes, that was the authority that we had to do covert searches mm -hmm. in her, apart her, her, her apartment. Um, we went to FBI headquarters, who went to the Department of Justice, who swore in front of a federal judge that this agent was an agent of a foreign power and likely engaged in clandestine intelligence activities. To me, that's, this is a good news story because it shows how critical FISA was and important a tool it was for us. I wish the public would really understand how difficult FISAs are to get. You have an independent federal judge appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, who is approving these FISAs, and it's not an easy process at well, all. Well, people don't understand the back and forth that takes sure. place, too. The idea is that sure. kind of the informal FISA applications be like, you're not going to get this. If you, get, if you give me right. this, it's going to get denied. Right. Fix it, get more evidence, get more information. Right. Right. And I'm sure by the time you were done, move away from counterintelligence, you knew everything that you needed to do to get a FISA warrant. Oh, absolutely. And that's another thing people don't understand is that the reason so many are passed is because people who are applying for them right. won't get near a judge unless yeah. they think they've got a slam sure, dunk. Sure, I mean, they're re reviewed, renewed every 90 days. Um, they may go to a different judge, but they're still going to a federal judge. You have to show progress in your investigation. You have to show that the tools you've been authorized to use are yielding results. Um, it's an incredibly... Um, most agents don't, don't sit there and relish going to get a FISA right. because of the oversight and the, the energy and, the, and the, um, the challenge we have to get that. I think it's one thing that underscores, and there's a lot of these, but one thing that underscores how time and, and effort intensive counterintelligence is. Yes. It's not a nine to five job. It's not, it's, you know, what you might actually be doing things on weekends. I can imagine how difficult it must be to maintain a normal life now, you said you weren't going to, you are a musician. You, you, you can go on your Twitter feed and you can find out where you're playing around the D.C. area if you want to listen to you sing Springsteen. You said you weren't going to do it, but I will. Um, that can't be easy either, right? Because up, up until the minute you might get a break in a case, you might have to drop everything and go in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, um, I think what's, what would be nice for the American people to know is, you know, we... Being an FBI agent is what we do. It's not necessarily who we are. We're spouses, we're parents, we're sons and daughters. Um, around the time that I was asked to become the co-case agent, uh, my former wife and I found out we were expecting our first child, my son Ethan. And I'm having to deal with, in my personal life, the fact that I'm gonna be a dad and all the excitement and nerves and, 
and apprehension with that. And at the same time, I'm working the case of my professional career and working something that I knew was going to be a big deal. And it's difficult, you know, to come home from work and tell your uncleared wife nothing about what you did that day. It's like, how was your day, honey? Good. What did you do? Stuff. Who'd you meet with? People. I mean, you know, think about having 10 months of conversations about what you had for lunch. Um, well, it's the thing you can't you can't talk to right. your wife about it, but you can't turn it off inside your exactly. head at the same time. So exactly. you need to sit there and be silent and kind of think about the case in your head and not be able to talk about it. Yeah, and and a case like this and a lot of the other kind of cases we work um, where the the risk is high. You know, the terrorism cases. You're worried sometimes when you're at home. You're worried about something going boom, or or your subject showing up at the airport all of a sudden and you don't know that they're going to the airport. I mean. You're distracted when you're at home because you're thinking about the case and what you need to prove and what's the next move. And um, it's it's difficult on on the family life to to work for the FBI because of the kind of job that we do and the mission that we have and the the inability to talk about what we do at home. Well, after the Enomontes case ended, you you got kicked north a little bit to the Baltimore Wilmington area. I did. And you, you dealt with a case that we don't talk a whole lot about here at the National Spy Museum, certainly not on the podcast, but it was a company versus company espionage case, and that's the Gary Min case, where some, something I read, $400 million worth of proprietary information was stolen from DuPont, not for the Chinese or the Iranians, but for another company. He, um, yeah, we stopped, the sentencing guideline goes up to $400 million, so oh, okay. it was like, why bother counting after So it could that? have been even more than that. It was well, yeah. well north of there. Um, my first day in Wilmington, when I got transferred up there, uh, my boss told me to go go to this little company in Delaware called DuPont. Perhaps you've heard of it. <laughs> they had two or three cases for you. And and the least important of the two cases was Gary Min because they he was actually cooperating somewhat with corporate security. But um, you know, over a period of six months, he accessed a, a, a tremendous amount of trade secrets. DuPont trade secrets and went shopping through the library and and we believe he downloaded and and misappropriated. Now I will say we think we got it all back. Uh, we're pretty confident that we got all about their trade secrets, but we got it back because the company decided right away we're going to call the FBI. We're going to we're going to get and cooperate with the FBI because you know in these types of cases the FBI's top priority is not necessarily a prosecution. If we can prosecute someone that's some, that's great. We'd rather get the trade secrets back in the hands of the company right. before they leave the United States. I can't tell you how many cases where we've stopped people at the airport with thumb drives worth, worth of hundreds of millions of dollars of electronic trade secrets. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about economic espionage as being kind of a different animal yeah. than normal espionage. And I think that one of the things you've just alluded to was the difficulty in getting companies to report and cooperate. Correct. This And this is true with any kind of hacking breaches or things like that, too, because they're wary of showing weakness to their competitors. Right. They're wary of showing weakness to their customers. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly the case with, like, I remember when Target was hacked and the hundreds of millions of credit yeah. cards. And, of course, there's liability issues when it comes to that, too. Yeah, concerns that, about shareholders, all right, that kind sure. of Right, sure. And, you know, getting sued for privacy issues and everything else. Right. Is that, like, the number one obstacle when you talk about economic espionage versus other types of espionage is having to work with the company essentially being the main player in all this and getting their cooperation? Hugely. You know, the CIA by law has to report 
uh, a, a, an NSA and the rest of the intelligence community has to report to the FBI that they have an anomaly or they have a, an employee that can't pass a polygraph and, and report that. Companies are not required to report these, these losses or these potential misappropriations of their trade secrets to the FBI. They've got to trust us. And we've, we've done a lot over the past 20 some odd years of building that trust and showing that we can be trusted if you call us to prosecute. You know, the difference between espionage and economic espionage is one of the big differences. An espionage person who's stealing secrets from the government will stay in place for a long period of time. They're not looking to flee or leave unless they figure out their own investigation. In an economic espionage case, they move incredibly quickly because once the person gets the keys to the kingdom, you know, they don't need to stick around. Right. They're moving very quickly. And, and I can't tell you, you know, 24 to 48 hours, potentially, that's how quick these things move. And, and therefore, a company having that internal commitment to call the FBI right away, you know, we're not here to be your corporate security department. However, we'll move very quickly if your employee is heading to the airport to try and get back your positive control of your trade secrets. That's our top priority. It's not like the Russian 10 case where you wait 10 years. No. When following no. them around to see if they're talking to you. No, no. These cases, the, the economic espionage cases move very, very quickly. So a lot of people have a hard time, even when we talk to them about it here, because we are in the new museum are going to have an economic espionage gallery. Yeah. People have a hard time getting their heads around espionage when it's not a drone or it's not a piece of military equipment or it's not selling out assets overseas why this is a big deal kind sure. of there is this innate kind of screw those fat cats kind of mm -hmm. feeling and the idea of maybe even a victimless crime like, like big deal i don't have stock in dupont why do i care yep. talk a little bit about why economic espionage is so problematic not only for the companies themselves but broader for america our economic security is a big part of our national security and our economic security has to do with a vibrant private sector um if, if a company loses a huge um, product line like Kevlar, that potentially will put people out of work and result in the loss of jobs, result in businesses going out of business because now it's made more cheaply in a foreign country and sold back here in the United States. So we view economic espionage as a national security issue because of the economic security, the vitality of that to our country's economy and a driving force talking about competitive balance you may not want to mention any countries by name but i will um it seems like a lot of cases have involved the people's republic of china in stealing economic secrets and then making a product much cheaper and then pushing american companies out of the market i mean to me this is the economic threat right the idea is if the difficulty in creating a product like kevlar that you mentioned a couple times is not coming up with a magic formula for Kevlar. It's all the mistakes that led up to that. Sure. It's the hundreds of yep. millions of dollars or billions of dollars of screw-ups right. Right. that it led to this wonderful final product. Right. And if you steal it, then you don't need to go through that process. And you can put... That, that's... Exactly. People all the time, I, big pharma, everyone can be mad at or love it all you want to. But the reason in some cases that it's $100 for a pill is they spend a billion dollars yep. figuring out how it worked. Yeah. Sure, it only takes them 10 cents to make the pill and they sell it for 100 but they're trying to make up for the billion dollars of research. Right. If you can skip that, then you can send, sell the pill for a dollar and put our companies out of business. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what our mindset is with it. You know, uh, expediting the R&D phase of things by stealing it is, is it gives them a leg up and they, they steal 
the mistakes, like you said, mm -hmm. that were made along the way. And, uh, you know, Gary, Gary took, uh, Gary Min from DuPont took 90 to 95% of Kevlar Nomex and Kevlar, uh, Kevlar Nomex and Captone, um, three business lines that well exceeded $400 million. So his ability to take the, the, how the plant is structured, how the engineering goes, what's the secret formula, all of those processes, engineering processes would have given somebody not DuPont an advantage with, with making a, a cheaper product somewhere else in the world. Let me shift focus and ask about your time at the ODNI. Um, the ODNI was created as a bit of a panacea for the problems that the yeah. intelligence community had, you know, in nine 11 and just right. thereafter, this was intended to be kind of a, a coalition of the best of the best, kind of the super friends, the Avengers of the intelligence community. <laughs> Did you find an environment of cooperation when you were there? I mean, it, there's some growing pain still to this day yeah. about the ODNI. Um, I'm wondering if you kind of found yourself in an environment that you thought was doing its job, um, or are there still some fixes that need to be made? I, I really look back very fondly on my time at ODNI. I, wouldn't, I won't say that I went there happy mm -hmm. to go to this assignment. Um, however, after the fact, I really enjoyed that interagency experience. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Jim Clapper and his leadership while he was the DNI, his approach to things uh, from a community perspective, him wanting to integrate intelligence. I, I think it has a very viable role for the community. And, and there has been some growing pains and they started with some of the other IC partners and, and then the FBI has kind of had some similar type growing pains with it. But it, the, the advocacy for the IC and having that one person who's independent from each of the individual agencies, I think is a very, very strong model that we could be improved, obviously, but I think it's it's the way we should be doing business. Well, that's what's going to be my next question of the kind of, is it worth it? Is, do you see a future in the, with the ODNI? I do. I absolutely do. I really think they, that having one person speak across the 17 agencies of the intelligence community with one voice and be that keynote person um, to, to structure the budgets and make sure that the community is getting fed financially and represented at the table, so to speak, I think is a strong model that we should continue. Then you went back to the FBI, and I want to ask you about the, the DSAC, the Domestic Security Alliance Council. Yes. This sounds like there's a pretty cool, I mean, I read a whole lot on the website about it. It sounds like it's, it's, it's set up to, do, to fix a lot of the problems from the last couple decades of where right. there hasn't been this really great partnership yep. between private industry and the government. Talk a little bit about what that is. So DSAC stands for the Domestic Security Alliance Council. It's a three-tiered, post-9-11, three tiers between the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and the private sector. It's Fortune 1,000 companies with more than a billion dollars in revenue, more than a regional footprint, and have a national security nexus. The idea is to build a, a information-sharing network both ways, between both private industry and the FBI and vice versa, and to know who to talk to. We've kind of expanded this model at the FBI and created private sector coordinators within each field office, which is the role I'm in now. All we do is relationship management. Uh, I know who to talk to at Booz Allen and at Hilton and at General Dynamics, and we have a, a great personal relationship that benefits 
FBI and our operations and information sharing. They know who to call when they have a situation that they have concerns about, and we know who to call. And there's already a relationship there. So DSAC is a is a product of that, as well as our InfraGuard program. And um, you know, we're we're learning post 9/11 how to do information sharing better, and we're improving all the time. I think, and it's part and part to these programs of outreach and liaison and engagement. Well, it seems like it could be potentially the silver bullet to that fundamental problem with economic espionage is that reporting. Right. You know, if you have a good relationship, is there kind of an informal reporting element there too? Maybe this is not something you can talk about or it doesn't exist. Where, you know, before you, let's say com- company X gets, has, has someone spying on them or gets mm-hmm. hacked. If they reach out to the FBI, it becomes a full-fledged FBI investigation. Is there a, hey, Peter, I think we got a problem. I'm not ready to bring in the kind of full SWAT team yet. Is there kind of that informal element to it to where they're almost like a security blanket for some of these companies to kind of say, do we have a problem, FBI? Does that make sense, my question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I think it depends on the relationship and the trust that's built in there with the, the myself or my counterparts and the private sector folks. Certainly there's there's information sharing that goes back and forth in terms of, yeah, this is something we should be concerned about. Um, ultimately, low, you know, a company has to decide whether mm-hmm. they're going to report a cyber breach, an economic espionage breach, or or whatever their situation is. They've got to make that corporate decision. We're not going to force ourselves on a company if we found out that they have a data loss or a trade secret loss. They have to they have to be voluntary. They have to willingly come to us and say we've got a problem. Let me wrap this up by kind of talking a little bit about the future of CI. You know, you've got you got the long career behind you. Uh, so you're kind of the perfect person to kind of pick your brain about this. Kind of the initial fence, the initial bulwark against any kind of intelligence operation against the United States, particularly from the insider threat perspective, is security clearance process. Sure. Talked about how Anna Montez passed the polygraph. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in the news about security clearance and the process that may not work or may work. Certainly Ed Snowden passed polygraph tests, so did H- Hansen and so did sure. Ames. Is there a is there a flawed process to security clearances, or is there um, maybe flawed is the wrong way? It's too strong. Do we need to make tweaks to this process? Um, you have, I think, the number of people with top secret SCI clearances in the hundreds of thousands now. Perhaps that's too many. Yeah. Um, and people seem to be getting cleared and then going and doing bad things regardless. Well, that's a softball question, isn't it? You can only, you know, I, I understand that you're still, you're still on the job, so I'm you teasing. can only answer it. Um, it it's the, the, the clearance process is not a be all and end all. It, it's a process. And I think that it's just a piece to determining whether someone is suitable and reliable to have access. Um, things happen in our lives, you know, that could change the suitability. And, and part of the process is to update that information. You named a number of examples. Those folks all had clearances and had reinvestigations for, you know, several, several years, and they still committed espionage. It's not a perfect system. You know, if, if someone wants to, like Amantes, hide the fact that she's moonlighting as a Cuban agent and not getting any money for it and only walking out the door with things in her head that are classified, not sticking a thumb drive in, right. not using some really cool spy camera to take pictures of documents, memorizing. You know, how do we stop that? I honestly don't have an answer for that because she walked, we all walk out 
every day of our jobs with things in our head and in our line of work, things that are classified. So um, the security process can be improved. It's not a be all and end all. So I have three, three big kind of non-softball questions I'm going to ask you. That was the first one. <laughs> so, here. so how much um, are we seeing non-state actors emerging as major threats now versus state actors, whether it's companies, hacktivists, even terrorist organizations that are emerging as a primary or at least a secondary focus of counterintelligence? You know, I think you have to look at um, the way some countries work compared to the United States. If you look at the top 15 American companies, none of them are state-owned because that's not the way our system is. Um, Russia, China, different story. You're talking well north of half of those companies, private companies, are state-owned. So surely there's um, a concern that we have from those, as you say, non-state actors from companies that are have some level of state ownership by their countries, and those are things that we do get concerned about. And uh, I don't know if it's a growing concern, but certainly it's different from the United States because we don't have state-owned companies. Well, and the trick there, I mean, <clears> I'm thinking of stuff like the Internet Research Agency and Cambridge Analytical, which were, by if you went back into their ownership, if you looked at kind of how they were developed, there's not a lot of direct link. We had to fight, you know, scratch, claw, tooth and nail to find that Russian connection for these two organizations. That has to make life very difficult for counterintelligence professionals to look at not just front companies, but we're talking about cut out, cut out, cut out, finally before you can work your way back to a state actor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's much more fun when the person can talk about this stuff. Now, I appreciate what you can and can't say. So the final thing I want to ask you, and this is, again, another waxing philosophic big picture question. And we've already kind of touched upon this a little bit, but are we getting too focused on the high tech and letting our guard down on low tech? The idea of, like you said, Anna Montez just memorized stuff and walked yeah. out the door. I know when we get, all you see about counterintelligence in the media is cyber this, cyber that, news right. technology, AI, all these things. Right. Instead of just, you know, just kind of memorizing stuff or even the old fashioned rust pass and dead drops and the things you talked about as being like, the old but good, and it's right. still something that our adversaries look at. Maybe FBI is not getting too focused on high tech, but are we as a public think that the technology is the sexy part and maybe get a little bored about the low tech stuff? I, I look at um, cyber as a means to an end. If, if you can hack your way into a company and steal the designs, the sketches, the, the IP, that's great from a outside perspective. However, if you can, you still have to reverse engineer that. You still have to engineer those things successfully. And without having the human that can put that together, the engineer, the scientist, the coder, that can make sense of these charts and diagrams and files and everything, I think it's only a part of what the problem is, to be honest with you. Behind every keyboard is a human being. And that person has traits and behaviors that, that um, can be um, compared to other folks to determine whether there's an issue or not. And it's, I think we have to look at it from both perspectives, mm -hmm. the human perspective and the cyber types perspective. I don't think either disciplines are going away. So a lot of what we've talked about today can be found online. Uh, there's certainly a lot of images and even footage from Operation Ghost Stories, which was the Russian 10 case. 
this, the FBI does a great job of having background and biographical information about a lot of the main spies that they've rounded up, including Anna Montez. The Domestic Security Alliance Council is also online. There's a ton of information about that if you're interested. And Peter Lapp can be playing uh, around the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, uh, one-man band and restaurants and bars around if you want to check that out as well. Peter, Peter, FBI special agent, Washington field office. Fascinating conversation. Um, maybe once your clearance elapses and we can have a conversation down the road, if you're retired, we can talk about it a little bit more. Uh, I'm just joking. We have the FBI person here is like, <laughs> no, um, we really appreciate your time here for joining us at SpyCast. Well, thanks. And I appreciate you giving me some time. And I, I, I want to make it clear that um, represent 30,000 people that wake up every morning trying to do two things, whether they work healthcare fraud or Cuban counterintelligence or public corruption, they try to protect the American people and, and uphold the constitution. That's what they do. And I see a lot of people lately with their heads down, working at their desks, working on their cases and, uh, and trying to do the right thing for the American people. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, Every Tuesday, we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.